Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. Uh, my name is uh, Chris Brown, and I'll be uh, chairing uh, this session. Uh, and I'm going to introduce the speakers now and tell you a bit about the format, but I won't take very long because you haven't come to hear me, you've come to hear the, the authors we have today. Uh, the origin of this session goes back to the International Studies Association. Uh, it goes beyond that, but the International Studies Association annual convention in New Orleans last year, where we had a very successful panel uh, where about 150 people came uh, on Battlestar Galactica. Uh, the recent TV series, and uh, one of the things that came clearly out of that was that this, this was a program that probably told us more about the war on terror, about civil military relations, about gender politics, than certainly most things in, uh, in popular culture, but also uh, quite a lot of academic literature. There were six papers on that occasion. I was one of the discussants. We had about 150 people in the audience, a couple of people in costume, which was uh, nice, uh, uh, although it wasn't compulsory. And they'd actually had the costumes flown into the hotel, uh, which you could regard as slightly disturbing, but uh, uh, we got away with it. And it occurred to me we ought to do uh, this again, and the Literary Festival was a good way of bringing together, uh, because that was a wholly academic occasion, bringing together people who actually write science fiction and uh, people who talk about the science fiction that uh, people write. And so uh, that's the purpose of these sessions. We, we have two sessions today. This one, which is starting a little late, um, for which we apologize, which will uh, go on till just before three o'clock. And uh, uh, in this session, uh, the three authors we have with us today uh, will be leading the proceedings and talking for a quarter of an hour each or doing a reading or talking about what their, their work. And then we'll have questions to them in which I hope we'll have some audience questions, but also uh, from uh, three academics on the panel. Uh, then in, at three o'clock in another lecture theatre uh, upstairs, uh, room 204 in this building, we'll kind of reverse the process in which we'll have the three academics leading off and then uh, 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 everybody asking them questions about the proceedings. So that's the way it's going to go here. Uh, now can I introduce people? Uh, the main people I want to introduce are the three authors we have today. Um, I could read off the list of their books, but uh, it would take too long uh, because they're all three of them very prolific and uh, are very well regarded with a whole string of awards. Uh, fortunately, we have a book exhibit outside where the books all uh, are around and their latest books in particular should be there. And uh, I think there'll be an opportunity for uh, to get a, a bit of signing. I'm sure authors always like that sort of thing later. We have John Courtney Grimwood. Um, we have Paul McCauley, Ken McLeod. Uh, I think, I, as I say, I won't mention all their, their books. John Courtney Grimwood has a new book out which is set in a, a, a different Venice, I think it's fair to say, uh, of about uh, the 15th century. Uh, I think a lot of people, including me, will know him most from his Arabesque trilogy. We have Paul McCauley, uh, who uh, uh, again is a very prolific writer, and uh, his two books on the Quiet War are, uh, 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 I think, quite central. And Ken McLeod, who uh, is a very prolific writer, who's written a number of sequences, uh, in, in, including the Engines of Light trilogy and earlier works, the Star Fraction, the Cassini Division, and so on. 
all uh, of these authors are authors who uh, have, I, I think they wouldn't mind me saying so, an intensely political sense of the world. They, uh, they write about international politics even when they're not writing about international politics. Uh, the academics who will be present uh, today, we have Patrick uh, Jackson from American University, we have Dan Nixon from uh, Georgetown, and we have Ivan Newman from the uh, from UP in Oslo. Uh, all three of these uh, writers, and Barry Bazan, who will be chairing the next section, are people who've written quite extensively on science fiction over the last 10, 15 years. So I'm very pleased with this uh, uh, panel, uh, we, uh, and I hope we, uh, we can have a really uh, good session. The three authors will each speak for something like uh, 15 minutes uh, before we get down to some questions. We're going to take them on the order that we have here. So it will be John Courtney Grimwood first. John? Thank you. Okay, can you hear this? No? Okay, this is from the new book and it's set in Venice in 1407. It's a Venice where Marco Polo's family have been ruling for five generations, where the superpower in the world is the Mongols and the two major powers are the Holy Roman Emperor and what we call the Byzantine Empire. Okay, I'm just going to do a reading. <clears throat> so far and no further, said a shadow behind her. Old and weary, the voice sounded like dry wind through a dusty attic, unwrapping itself. The shadow became a moor dressed in a dozen shades of grey. A neatly barbered beard emphasised the thinness of his face, and his gaze was that of a soldier grown old and tired with life. Across his shoulders hung a sword. Daggers jutted from both hips. She noticed his crossbow last, tiny, almost a toy, with barbed arrows the size of her finger. With a sour smile, the moor pointed his crossbow at Josh's throat before turning his attention to the young woman he'd been following. My lady, this is not kind. Bunching her fists, Lady Juliet fought her anger. She'd become used to holding her temper in public, screaming about her forthcoming marriage behind closed doors. She was two years older than her mother when she wed. Noble girls married at 12, went to her husband's beds at 13, sometimes a little later. At least two of Juliet's friends had children already. She'd been whipped for her refusal to marry willingly, starved, locked in her chambers, until she'd announced she'd kill herself. On being told that was a sin, she'd sworn to murder her husband instead. At that, Aunt Alexa had shaken her head sadly, while Uncle Alonso had taken her to aside to say it was interesting she mentioned that. Her world became a darker, more horrid place. Not only would she marry a foreigner she'd never met, she'd be taught how to kill him when the bedding was done. You know what they expect me to do? My lady, it's not my place. Of course not. You're just the curd sent to round up strays. His eyes flared and she smiled. He wasn't a cur and she wasn't a stray. She was Giulietta de San Felice de Milioni, the regent's niece, the new duke's cousin, Duchess Alexis' granddaughter her whole life defined by how she was related to someone else. Say so you couldn't find me. I've been following you since I saw you leave. Why, she demanded. Only in the last half hour had she felt herself watched. She couldn't believe he'd let her travel across Venice by himself, knowing he would stop her before she escaped. I hoped she might turn back. How can I marry a man I haven't met? You know. Julietta stamped her foot. She understood. 
All daughters were assets. Princely daughters more than most. It was just. What if there was someone she was meant to marry? She regretted her words the moment they were spoken. The Moor's quiet contempt for her question ensured that. And what if he lives on the world's far edge? Or is not yet born? <coughs> what if he died centuries ago? What if he loves someone else? Policy can't wait on a girl's fantasies. Let me go, Julietta begged. My lady, I can't. He shook his head sadly, never letting his crossbow's aim stray from Josh's throat. Ask me anything else. I don't want anything else. Attila Will Morris had bought her first pony, dangled her on his knees. With his own hands, he'd carved a bear, fighting a woodcutter. But he would return her to Kajikal, because that was his duty. Attila did his duty without fear or favour. It had made him the late Duke's favourite, and earned him Alonso, the new regent's hatred. Julietta had no idea what Aunt Alexa thought of her. If you loved me, her voice was flat. Lord Attilo glanced at the bow he held, looked at the ragged thieves and shifted Julietta out of their hearing. My lady, listen to me, Julietta said. She felt sick in her gut, fed, tired and fed up and close to tears. King Janus was a crucifer, a black crucifer. I know, and I had to learn it from servants' gossip. They're going to marry me to an ex-torturer who broke his vows of poverty and chastity, who abandoned the purity of pain. Her lips curled at the words, to become king, Attilo said simply. He's a monster. Julietta, the Germans want Venice, Constantinople wants it too. The Mamluks want your colonies. Even my people, the Moors, would happily see your navy sunk. King Janus was black only briefly. Cyprus is an island we can use. Use, she said in scorn. Venice's strength rests on its trade routes. It needs Cyprus. Besides, you have to marry someone. It might as well be him. The Moor nodded, and she wondered if he could read the fury in her eyes. Anger kept her fear at bay, fear of what being married to a black crucifer might involve. My lord, Josh interrupted. Attilo raised his bow. Did I tell you to speak? His finger began tightening on the trigger. Let him. My lady, you're in. No position to demand anything, Julietta said bitterly. She'd never been in a position to mind anything, as far as she could see. At least not since her mother was murdered. Julietta was a millionaire, a princess. She'd had one of the most gifted, gilded childhoods in Venice. Everybody envied her. She'd swap it all for Julietta bit her lips so hard it bled. There were days her self-pity nauseated her. This was turning out to be one of them. Let's hear what he has to say, she suggested. Attilo lowered his tiny bow. A nod said the boy was reprieved for now. This had better be good. We should get off the streets, my lord. That's it, Attilo said, astonished. That's your contribution. You're a split second from death, and you think we should get off the streets. It's almost dark. They're afraid of the night watch, Julietta said. She wasn't surprised. Beat you, violate you, smash your fist. Smash your face if you don't do what they want. That sounded as if the ragged girl spoke from experience. Not the watch, the younger boy said dismissively. We ain't afraid of them. They don't go out after dark. They're the night watch, Julietta protested. Got more sense, he told her, not with what's out there. And what is out there, she said. Perhaps the small boy didn't see Attilo's warning scowl. Perhaps he wasn't bothered. Demons, he said. No, his sister said. They're monsters. Thanks very much. Paul. Well, I'm going to hop over there because I have to play with all the pictures you just. <laughs>
Um, I can also ask, is because somebody arranged some lovely mood lighting so we can see the pictures? Of it. Is that possible? I know I should be able to sort this out. Is it possible just to turn the lights down just a little bit? Yes, thanks. That's brilliant. Okay, well, I'm probably not going to give a reading. I'll just give a little talk about how I came to write a couple of books and just start off with a sort of generalisation, really, about science fiction and know something you probably all, most of you probably know, that it's a big, baggy genre that includes all kinds of stuff. It includes comic novels, it includes romances, detective stories, catastrophes, satires, dystopias... Utopias and box standard realistic fiction that just happens to be set on Mars in the 22nd century. Um, and in fact, you know, stories can be set anywhere and any when, but it's most often associated with that big blank space, uh, the big unknown, the future. Now, I don't think that science fiction is of any use if you want to know exactly what's going to happen in North Africa next week or what's going to happen in quantum computing in the next uh, decade, or space exploration in the next century. It's not really in the prediction business, despite um, some claims to the contrary. It isn't really about what's going to happen, about what will happen. It's about what might happen. It asks hard questions about the future, but it doesn't promise definitive answers. It's about exploring every kind of possibility that radiates out from the present our world, about taking some interesting element or trend that's happening right now and pushing it as hard and as far as it will go. And I suppose one of the reasons we're here today is to talk about possible futures and how they get built. And in, well, anyway, that's what I want to talk about, and I want to talk about that by way of an example of one particular possible future that I happen to know quite well. Um, I want to tell you how I came to write two novels about a kind of um, scientific utopia. Um, in a loose confederation of city-states located on the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. And I also want to tell you how I came to write it backwards. Um, you see, my point of inspiration wasn't some kind of sudden insight or uh, urgent need to explore a utopia and uh, rush out into the streets and say, this is a far better way of living, let's get to it, here's, here's how we can do it. Instead, really, I was inspired by robots. And or rather I was inspired by the images of being back to Earth from robots, robot spaceships that uh, shot through the systems of Jupiter or Saturn or settled into orbit there. And everything else came from this kind of thing. Right, so these are the two books I'm talking about, um, Quiet War Gardens of the Sun. And these are the Galilean moons of Jupiter. Um, so if you go from the... Let's see, it's, it's your right, my left. That's Io... Europa, Ganymede, Callisto. Now, Ganymede and Callisto are very heavy craters. They look a bit like the moon. They contain a lot more ice. They're bigger. Ganymede is the biggest moon in the solar system. If it was orbiting the sun instead of orbiting Jupiter, it would be rightly considered a planet. Um, Io is a very old world. It's kind of inside-out world. It's, it's, it's close enough to Jupiter that the tidal heating melts its core and um, its, its surface is dominated by sulfur chemistry and volcanism. In fact, you can see just here, that's a volcano. Vol huge volcanoes continually erupting on Io. It's not a great place to live. It's also drenched in hard radiation, so it's definitely not a great place to live. But 
between these and there, there's Europa. Europa is very interesting moon indeed. Um, it's one of the smooth, got one of the smoothest landscapes in the solar system, and it's also very cracked as well. And the reason why it's very smooth and very cracked is because it's covered in water ice. And under that water ice is an ocean, an ocean of liquid water. And again, this is a section through it, so it's a bit fuzzy but still. It's thought down at the bottom of the ocean, which could be anywhere between um, 10 and 40 kilometers deep, and probably contains more water than the oceans of the Earth. Um, there are hydrothermal vents. Again, the core of Europa is heated by uh, tidal friction, and that keeps the ocean liquid. And at the top, there's a kind of ice cap that goes all the way around the moon. Occasionally, it cracks, and you get flooding, which resurfaces it, which keeps it nice and smooth. So here we have liquid water, and what the one lesson, I was a biologist, I used to be a biologist, the one lesson the biologists always say, if you want life, you have to have water, liquid water at some point. Here's a lot of liquid water, so I'm very interested from the point of view of biologists is that, could there be anything living there? But more importantly as well, could you actually drill down into there and start colonizing it? So, so science fiction writer, that's a very interesting thought, having city, underwater cities inside an ocean, inside a moon. Okay, now this, we're going outwards from Jupiter now to Saturn. These are some of the moons of Saturn. There are about 60 or 70 of them in the last count. Make what you count as a moon. Um, so these are some of the biggest. Um, and I want to concentrate just to tell you about one. Um, this is the one there. It's large. It's not the biggest moon. It was thought not very interesting at all. Until you look at closest, this is in Slavis, as it is compared to the size of the United Kingdom. It's about 500 kilometers across. Not very big. Again, you notice it's very smooth and like Europa, it's got cracks. It's got more craters than Europa, but like Europa, it's got cracks around it. And again, for exactly the same reason, inside Europa, inside Enceladus rather, there's, there's liquid water. Here you can see um, geysers coming out from the south pole of Enceladus, which is taken by the Cassini space probe. And these, these are firing off more or less continuously and actually create a ring of icy particles around Saturn. So as well as the famous rings of Saturn, you've also got this very faint ring in which Enceladus swims and uh, is continually renewing. Some of these icy particles fall back on Enceladus, which is why it's so bright. It's the brightest object in the solar system because it's more or less covered in pure water ice. And if you look, this is a theory of what's happening at the pole. Um, this is one of the theories of, of how the geysers are produced. Um, basically, there's, there's liquid water underneath. We're not, the scientists don't quite know what the heat source is for the, to, to make the water liquid, but there's definitely liquid water there. Pure water ice is coming out. Um, it's thought that gases may dissolve from the rocks. And when they get near the vacuum of space, it's like, a, a, it's like you're shaking up a Pepsi bottle or a Coke bottle. Take the lid off, and the geyser shoots out, driven driven by um, dissolved gases. Okay, So again, you've got water. So again, that's interesting. So again, on this little tiny icy moon, that if it was resting on London, wouldn't quite reach Paris, um, um, you've got liquid water, you've got a source for life. So again, you know, as, as a scientist, science fiction writer, fantastically interesting for me. Right. Um, and this is just another moon, because I can mention Diamonds, it's, it's the moon. I really like to put my colonists on. Dionysus is, is basically water ice, okay, uh, with a little solid rocky core. And you can see here these very bright streaks. I just want to show you 
those, um, they're ice cliffs, and if you look at close up apart from them, here's the ice cliff. Um, so at one point, Dion was a bit warmer, and as it cooled, it contracted. You know, like putting an ice cube in, a, in, in some water, it cracks. Exactly the same for the Dion. You get these ice cliffs, and here you can see a freshish, probably only a billion years old or so, crater, and nice, fresh, bright water ice. All of this is water ice, so all of this is a resource that colonists could use. And I thought, gosh, golly, isn't that fun? Let's try and imagine how they could possibly live on these moons. The only problem, of course, with these moons is, first of all, they have, well, most of them have got an atmosphere, they're in vacuum, and secondly, they're cold, about minus, minus 180, minus 200 degrees centigrade, uh, depending on which moon we're talking about. So you've got all kinds of problems to overcome. But I thought this is fantastic stuff, and it's also, it's real stuff. You know, that crater actually exists. Cassini spacecraft is still orbiting um, Saturn, taking pictures. In fact, I took a nice picture of Enceladus and posed in front of, in front of Saturn's moons only the other day. You can go on, on the web and look up the latest photographs that they're downloaded. All this stuff exists out there. But to make these fantastic moonscapes really in human terms, I think it's necessary to, to insert human figures. Um, the maps, not the territory. Um, I just want to quote a little something that I found the other day. It's from um, a memoir by a yachtsman, French yachtsman, Bernard Mottessier. He says this, uh, The geography of the sailor is not always the one of the cartographer. For whom a cape is a cape with its longitude and latitude? For the sailor, a great cape is both very simple and extremely complex, with rocks, currents, furling seas, beautiful oceans, good winds and gusts, moments of happiness and of fright, fatigue, dreams, aching hands, an empty stomach, marvellous minutes and sometimes suffering. A great cape for us cannot be translated only into a latitude and a longitude. A great cape has a soul with shadows and colours, very soft, very violent. A soul as smooth as that of a child, as hard as that of a criminal. Okay, and I think one of the most powerful things science fiction does is to lend humans' perspective, drama, and emotion to real strange landscapes like, like this one on Diane. They're presently out of reach, but by imagining people in them, you can somehow make them more real, somehow nearer, somehow part of ordinary human experience. Um, but if you insert a figure into the hard reality of, say, this landscape, if you put somebody on the top of that cliff there, looking, over, looking down, um, you also have to drag in a whole mess of human life and history. Um, who is she? Where's she from? What's she doing on top of that cliff? Um, and what does she want? Where's she going next? So on and so forth. And the entire society springs up at her back as she stands there in her wasp yellow pressure suit. And then as she treks down that dusty ice slope um, at the apex of a double shadow cast by the sun and by Saturn shine. So, um, when I started to build the site of what I call the outer system, you know, the cities and settlements on these moons. Um, I did it backwards. I did it from this idea of a figure in a landscape. I wanted to find out where she's from, what she wanted, and um, that's how I did it. Um, partly I did it by trying to work out how people could live there, the kinds of technological fixes they need. Partly by trying to think my way inside the heads of the people who live there. Um, trying to work out how they'd be affected by living inside a completely artificial landscape. Uh, environment, a dome city for instance, or a tented city surrounded by a hostile landscape that would kill them instantly if they made a mistake, and also partly by whim and serendipity. Uh, thinking 
about life in a hostile landscape immediately made me uh, think of the one example on Earth of a society that requires, absolutely requires technology for its survival. And that's the scientific research basis of Antarctica. If they didn't have high tech, uh, human beings can live there permanently. Um, they're not self-contained, as the cities of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn uh, must be, if they ever exist. But I think they're a useful model of how to make um, common use of essential resources in a place where survival really is enhanced by cooperation and cohesion rather than by division and competition. Um, building on this, and as a former scientist, I also borrowed a major element from my, of my imagined society um, from science and other branches of academia. Now, academic, academics teach, obviously. They also do research, obviously. But they're also editors of journals, contributors to journals, referees of other academics' contributions. They run academic societies. They organize meetings like this. And they do it all, basically, for free. I mean, they get they salaries. But this is like extra stuff that they do. They get no money from it, at least no more than tiny stipends that I recall that I got, unless I was doing something wrong. Um, they basically do it for the love of doing it, and uh, they do it also because, like public research, adds their reputation. Because, of course, academia is reputation-based. And I thought to myself, well, let's make the society of the cities of this outer system, the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, also reputation-based. And we'll, we'll measure the reputation on trade or property, and we'll call that property kudos. Okay, so if you're a citizen of, one of, of, of say, Paris Dion, which is one of my cities, um, if you do work towards the public good, you gain kudos. It's in a public index. People can look up how good you are. Okay? And if you accumulate enough kudos, you can use it to organise and create public works, uh, influence political decisions and so on. Now, you'd have to be fantastically popular to do something silly, but if you were, you could do anything you wanted, in theory. Um, and I imagine all of this... Uh, the kudos-based society and the cooperation and so on, the sharing of common resources and so on, is bound together by um, an emotion that the Japanese have a word for that we uh, don't. It's, it's ame. It's a basic emotion um, that uh, Freud called the affectionate current. It's what an infant feels when she sees her mother. Okay? It's the um, opposite of envy. Um, it promotes group cohesion and it's re reinforced by positive feedback. You know, it's do unto others as you do have done to you. And people whose behaviour enhance the AME of others, I imagine in this society, are more receptive to cues that boost their own AME, so there's big positive feedback. So I imagine that the people living in these cities have been tweaked to be especially responsive to feelings of niceness. And so on. Okay, so yes, it is a bit utopian, but uh, it does go wrong, which is where the novel comes in. All right, well, luckily for you, I'm not going to explain everything else. Yes, because otherwise, otherwise it would just be boring utopia where I, I explain the, uh, how the, the steam crash works and where the balloon works are. Um, but luckily for you, there's not enough time, and luckily for my fellow authors, not time to thoroughly explore this imaginary society. And luckily for me, too, because I didn't really imagine it in great and rigorous detail. Although I'm known, I guess, as a writer of hard science fiction. Um, the kind of science fiction that plays within parameters established by current science. Um, I do like to throw in other stuff. I'm a big fan of um, whimsy and serendipity. And I think it's necessary because if you try and work up any kind of future history or any kind of 
society um, by logic alone from the ground up, um, you'll end up with some kind of sterile and her hermetic um, thought experiment. Um, so a fair amount of the society of this outer system um, is furnished with all kinds of stuff I stumbled on more or less at random. Um, so for instance, I imagined a city built into the rim wall of a crater on the moon of Dione, uh, not that crater, another crater, um, Romulus crater I think it was, which exists, double crater, there's Remus crater as well. I could point to it on a map of Dione. Um, I won't, don't worry. Um, <laughs> I borrowed the shape of the city from the night swoosh because I thought that would fit quite nicely and on the cliff wall. I paved the city with lawns of artificial grass because, you know, why not? And I ran a lovely river through it again and put some chestnut trees along it as well because I, I suppose I was thinking of George Orwell and people selling each other out underneath the chestnut tree and so on and so forth. Okay, so, so sort of randomness, I like that as well. Uh, and that's part of the, what I call the science fiction toolkit as well, is finding cues in the external world, being sensitive to them and, and spotting the ones you need and putting them in. Um, so all of this was built backwards, inspired by real landscapes, inform, uh, inf using informed extrapolation and also wild guesses, and I said serendipity. And all of it came from wanting to um, stand at the edge of an ice cliff on Dione, standing there, there's a nice little space probe under a sky dominated by Saturn and its rings as there. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Paul. Ken. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's easier for me to speak standing up as well. Can I, can everyone hear me all right? see a smile from the very back. Good. Um, I'm just going to speak briefly about my own novels in terms of how international relations went into them and then do a few short readings relevant to the topic from my latest novel, The Restoration Game, which will be coming out in paperback in April and the hardback will be on sale outside. Um, looking back over the dozen or so novels I've written, they're almost embarrassingly um, affected by whatever was going on in international politics at the time that I started writing them, or at the time when I conceived them. Uh, like the first four, that, which afterwards I came to call the Fall Revolution books, I began thinking about them in the late 1980s and started writing, well, started writing them actually in the late 1980s, but I actually completed them in the 90s. And they are overwhelmingly about the fall of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc and its implications, uh, both for the future and for, you know, political thought and political ideology and all that. And after that, I wrote uh, a trilogy, which is ostensibly was getting well away from Earth and all its concerns. Um, but the first, the first of these novels, Cosmonaut Keep, it starts off on Earth. And it's a future Earth, um, not too far in the future now, but now rather unlikely, in which the, for, the former Soviet Union reboots itself in Socialism 2.0, in a, a more efficient form of socialist economy and rolls over Western Europe in a brief 
War, which I think they call the Euro-Caspian Oil War. And that was actually inspired by an incident in, during the war over Yugoslavia in 1998-99 or so, when NATO and Russian troops were facing each other across the airstrips of Pristina Airfield Air, Airport. Yeah, and that was the great history-changing moment where James Bond, now the singer, saved the world when he was an army officer by refusing orders to go across the airport and drive off the Russian troops who were arriving on the other side of the airport. That's what he says anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, and finally, uh, when I, then I, I got into to, uh, more straightforward space opera, but more recently I've written three books that are set largely on Earth, and all of them in one way or another are influenced or affected by or think about the, the war on terror and the world that we find ourselves in as a result. The execution channel, the night sessions, and the restoration game. And the restoration game, my latest, is set in the science fictional year of 2008. And there is a reason for this, which is that when I, when I was planning it, I w I, what I intended to do was to write a science fiction novel but set it in the same in the kind of notional crescent that mainstream fiction is set in. You know, when you read a, a work of mainstream fiction, usually you don't know the date. There's nothing that sort of narrows it down, although as time passes it does get narrowed down. But it's, it's always set in this slightly elusive... It's usually set in a slightly elusive crescent, which isn't quite ours. And I was writing this novel, and I... I actually knew a little bit more than most people about the Caucasus area and about South Ossetia. So I had an, an, an imaginary um, place like South Ossetia called Krasnia, which was the, where this whole um, the novel revolved around. And the, no, the novel essentially was about the, the cool idea at the heart of the novel was, or, or the source of the novel was, what if somebody used a computer game, a role-playing game, as a means of organizing a color revolution in an ex-Soviet state? And as I was working through this, I swear that in August 2008, and I had just written the bit where, at this point, the tanks appear on the streets when <laughs> the Russia-Georgia war broke out. And all of a sudden, everybody was an expert on South Ossetia, and I could no longer use it as a hand wave. <laughs> so, I had to incorporate all that, and I did. But I'll just read. That's why I said it specifically in, in and around August 2008. The main character and narrator of most of the book, Lucy, is a young woman whose mother is American. Her mother, Amanda, is American and lived in Krasnia in the 80s as a research student and also as a CIA asset. And at the start of the story, Amanda has just asked Lucy, who works for a computer games company in Edinburgh, to tweak the game they're currently developing to use Krasnian mythology and language uh, in it to produce a special version for Krasnia, at which Lucy thinks, hmm, what's the CIA's sudden interest in Krasnia? Okay, so this is Lucy talking. 
There is no such place as Krasnia. If you are to draw it on a map, right where the borders of Russia, Abkhazia and Georgia meet and then fill it in, you'd need a fifth colour. On the other hand, Krasnia is a real place. I know because I've been there. Heck, I was born there. It has an official name for the day when everyone's embassy recognises it. They won't. The former Soviet Autonomous Region of Krasnia, F-S-A-R-K. Look familiar? It should. Walk down any high street in Europe and you'll see these letters in black lowercase, FSARK, on red plastic shopping bags, distributed free by the million in a rare fit of marketing mouse by the popular department store. All at the store, Krasnorglav, needs to do now is get people to actually buy its wares, which, since its best-selling lines are pirated CDs and Chinese and Vietnamese fakes of big-name luxury brands, could prove tricky. There's also the fact that the bags themselves were the result of an accidental five extra zeros in an order placed at the recently privatised plastics factory, <laughs> Krasnor Plascom. More about Krasnor later. For now, you only need to remember two things. First, you won't find it on the map, except for very detailed old maps of the SU and maps made by the Krasnian Ministry of Information, Krascom fact. Second, I was there when I was very young, and I've been back. Oh yes, I've been back. But when Amanda called, I hadn't been back, except in dreams. The dreams mattered, as it turned out. Home. Late. Me on the sofa, laptop on my knees. Tie takeaway half-eaten, remainder fit only for the fridge, and the microwave if tomorrow was the same as today. Cherry smoothie likewise congealing. I was test-playing the raw version of the gory first-person slicer. Dark Britannia, sword and sorcery, barbarian Arthurian grail quest with Roman legionary revenants and Pictish zombies that we hoped would make our fortune, and ticking boxes and noting glitches when the Skype icon winked. The caller ID was Mom. I saved the action mid-chop. Blue skin splits, green blood splatters, and opened the speaker. Hi, Mom. Oh, hello, Lucy. Everything's all right. Amanda always says things, says that. I appreciate it. I'm fine, too. It's late where you are. It was you phoned, Mom. Oh, yes, well, she made one of her us-girls-together noises, which I think is achieved by a light, throaty laugh while rubbing the phone through the hair behind her ear. It's usually a bad sign. Do you remember, Krasnia? Right. So, on it goes. But Lucy then has to do a bit of research on Krasnia. And I've been told that this passage is actually um, resonates quite well with people who have been students and have to write essays, because it's a common frustrating experience. So three nights into the job, I sat in the reference section of Edinburgh Central Library and tapped notes into my laptop from the books stacked in front of me. The time was 7.30pm and I'd come here from the office. I already had enough detail from the Krasniad, that's the epic that her mother wrote based on Krasnian mythology, and from a map of the Caucasus I'd found in a huge Times Atlas to get the place names and the landscape nailed down. This wasn't the first time I'd looked at Krasnia on a map. I'd looked it up on Google Earth as soon as Amanda had put the phone down the night she'd called. And from looking at the map, 
I thought I'd found an answer to the question I'd tactfully not asked her. What's with the CIA's sudden interest in Krasnia? Simple geography. <coughs> Krasnia lies south of the western end of the Caucasus and includes a pass, high and difficult, but wider than the Roki Tunnel, into Russia. Whoever holds Krasnia is within a hundred clicks of the Baku-Tbilisi-Seyan oil pipeline across open terrain. The trouble was, I'd gone on looking for references to Krasnia and found far too many. None of them of any use. It always worked the same way. I'd pull down a relevant book, look up Krasnia or Krasnian in the index. Sure enough, there it was. Add the book to the pile in the crook of my arm. When the pile got too heavy to add any more to, I take it back to the table, sit down and start chasing page numbers. Always with the same result. Samples from my notes. The settlements, unsatisfactory though they were, of the conflicts in South Ossetia, Abkhazia and, and, and Ajara left outstanding the minor but intractable problem of Krasnia. The Saakashvili government has, like its predecessors, turned a, a blind eye to the tiny region's anomalous status, no doubt in the hope that the problem will, over time, resolve itself. That was the one and only reference to Krasnia in Georgia After Communism, A Brief History, 2005. Scuffling and yelling by a small group of Krasnians on the fringe of the crowd failed to disrupt the demonstration. Later investigation revealed, to no one's surprise, the FSB's hand in the affair. That's from The Rose Revolution, a case study in democratic transformation. Anne Fassbender, Washington, 2007. The role of other minor nationalities in the deportation was, if anything, worse than that of the Ossetes, that of the Krasnians being particularly infamous. The Soviet southern flank, William McCulloch, Boston, 1978. The Krasnian nationality question was also, as is known, harmoniously resolved in accord with the decisions of the 20th Congress. A history of Soviet Georgia, Shishkin, Moscow, 1982. At this crucial moment, the Krasnians, as so often in the past, played a treacherous and despicable role in the nation's life. Georgia under Soviet rule, Y.A. Yakubashvili, Toronto, 1938. Every relevant book I'd looked at had the same pattern, a passing reference to Krasnia or the Krasnians, as if everything about the place and the people went without saying. Online, not much better. Even the Wikipedia entry for Krasnia was a stub. <laughs> I'd now reached the point where I'd pulled books about Russia or the Soviet Union off the shelves almost at random, with the same frustrating result. The lesson he had drawn from his painful experience in Krasnia once more stood him in good stead. Koba in the Observatory, New Light on Stalin's Early Years, David Isaacs on Tel Aviv, 1998. And finally, she's looking up older and older books. The young Lord Montford's travels in 1899 took him to the Caucasus, where he encountered a pioneer party of prospectors. In an excited letter from Krasnod, administrative capital of Krasnia, he told the board of directors of the splendid chaps who were discovering rich deposits on an almost monthly basis. The Turk, he said, was already sniffing around to see nothing of the Prussian and the Hebrew. Montford's decision to strike an exclusive deal at once, without waiting to consult the board, was to prove far-sighted and immensely lucrative to the Ural Caucasian Mineral Company. 
His week in Krasnaya was also, of course, to prove of great personal significance to Lord Montford. The British Adventure in Russia, from Peter to Nicholas, Dame Sheila Gardner, London, 1939. That one made me jump. My heart was hammering. Was this Lord Montford, my maternal great-great-grandfather? Did my family's connection to the godforsaken place go back that far? So she looks up Lord Montford's. There were a lot of Lord Montford's. There were a lot of Lord Hugh Montford's. The first Lord Hugh died on a crusade, for Christ's sake. Bunny family had probably come over with William the Conqueror. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thanks very much. I, I, I think there have been three really interesting, very contrasting contributions. Now, I, I, I know my colleagues up here have uh, got things they'd like to ask, but uh, let's start off by asking for audience participation, as it were. Questions from the audience, contributions. Yes, please do. Um, I think we might have a mic there. Yeah, we do have a mic. How, uh, uh, how interested do you have to be, though, in a, an obscure, as was then, area to actually pick up your book and uh, follow you through on the journey? I mean, if they, if they don't know or care the area, do you find that uh, you have to um, make, embellish it, or is it sufficiently interesting in its own right? Try because international relations isn't necessarily everybody's cup of tea. Oh, Kras uh, I've only read out a, bit, a few bits that are about Krasnaya and the international relations sort of aspect of the place. Um, Krasnaya is just the locale of um, essentially a, a, an adventure story. What happens when Lucy has to go to Krasnia and all these guys who are claiming to be her father and stuff like that, and how she finds out the, the total and final secret of the universe while she's there? You know, so I don't think I have a problem with that. <laughs> yeah. For Paul Macaulay, I was interested in your theory of uh, kudos. I just wonder whether David Cameron is a big fan of your writing. Oh yeah, but David Cameron obviously read the books and thought big society. And, yeah, <laughs> I was thinking more of the co-op movement. I got to say, and collecting. My mother, my mother was a member of the co-op movement. Back when we used to get stamps in a book for buying things in the car, and uh, Carly comes from that. And you could any member who had a book of stamps could vote. I think for the co-op and, and all the things. So. There's something called the People's Supermarket, not very far away from it, which I think David Cameron appeared in in a photograph very recently as well, which is based on a kind of American model of um, common ownership of a shop where you work for a few hours and get discounts. So it's this, you know, there's, there are various models. I don't think you have to be tremendously right-wing or laissez-faire Tory or, a, or a, you know, Lady Banffall Victorian society to, uh, to buy into that kind of thing. When, when you're designing a political system for the future, it probably perhaps more for the farther future than the nearer future, what, what's the most important factor, do you think? Especially when you're trying to come up with something new, because when we were looking at the, uh, Mr. Macaulay's example of the, the planets, it seemed like it was, the, it was, the, the, it was the, just the physical factors which kind of compelled the, the citizens to create the system that made them work together. 
Now, if you created a system like that, would you say that the, the physical factors matter the most in any system or just in these particular extreme circumstances? Or how important are just perhaps even the characteristics of human beings and considering the development of psychology and things like that? Uh, shall I go first? I think you know, I have something to say about that one. Um, well, I mean, obviously it's a bit of a cheat because uh, they are fairly extreme. <laughs> Circumstances, and I didn't talk about the back history, which is basically the people who settled the moons of Jupiter and Saturn are, are descended from scientific technicians who ran a city on the moon, which was a refuge for the ultra rich when New Zealand was no longer vi a viable refuge, and their yachts were no good either because of tremendous problems on the earth. Uh, um, so you have to keep stepping backwards. So, so they had a natural bent for that anyway. And as I said, um, every author drags in a bias, and my particular bias is that I have to be. Uh, Work in academia for a very long time as well, so I'm kind of bent and twisted and warped and shaped a little bit by that. And I think you know every, every author, if you, you scratch one of the books, you, you know it's, it's, it's commonplace for critics to say you're going to find the personal history underneath. That's not necessarily always true, but certainly it's the easiest thing to grab onto when you're first thinking of things and you may develop things from there. And it's not necessarily the easiest thing to develop, but in my case, I thought it was an interesting thing to develop it in terms of trying to think of how a society would manage to um, keep going in circumstances like that, where they are extreme. I mean, the, the, the other way of looking at it is, is, it, is it's also a kind of hunter-gatherer society as well. You know, it's not necessarily science and technology, which I have something like that as well. You could, you could look at uh, you know the Inuit and so on and so forth. They also share common resources. When they want to catch a big animal, they all get together and go out and catch the big animal, and they share it up um, according to uh, rank and various other things as well, which also has some kudos in it, uh, something equivalent to kudos in it as well. So um, they've been pushed out to the margins. They're living, they're, they're, they're managing in that way. And I was thinking of these people that they're not caught out as for nothing. You know, they've been pushed onto the margins as well. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a cheat, but I do think, you know, uh, there is some logic to it as well. Once you start with, you know, at point A, right, it may be a random point A, but I want to develop it from point A to point B to point C as logically, or at least as consistently as possible, so there's nothing there that's going to make you bump out of the story. I mean, that's quite important too, um, so there's nothing outrageously contradictory in itself, even the whole thing might be a horrible contradiction. See what I mean? <laughs> Do we? Do you want to? I think that was a more general question, wasn't it, Sophie? Yeah. 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 I. The, it's a funny thing that kind of contributes towards answering that question is that one of the societies that I've imagined in my novel Newton's Week has a very similar system, although not worked out in anything like the same degree of detail as the one Paul's just described, but the, the um, problem, so, so to speak, that the, led to the setting up of this system on a, an isolated planet, which in the book is called Eurydice, um, was not, not um, danger and, and uh, a hostile environment, but cornucopian abundance. They, they had the nanotechnology, you know, the sort of hand-wave machinery of the 22nd century that churns out endless quantities of anything that they can imagine. And they, they know that they, and this poses something of a problem for them because <coughs> these people are, <coughs> I think, uh, these people are just ordinary Western-type people from here. So they know they're not communists, 
So they, they set up a complete charade of capitalism <laughs> where kudos is referred to as credit okay. or interest. Mm -hmm. And if you accumulate enough credit or interest, mm -hmm. you, you get to do projects. And this is all to pacify the, the government of the society, which is called the Joint Chiefs of Staff. <laughs> some very old, very old life-extended people who are always addressed by the name of their, um, the name of their function, like space or defense or whatever, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And um, yeah, on, on, in other situations, I've, you know, I've just stolen ideas from anthropology textbooks, like one society where mm -hmm. it looked as if the, all the power was in the hands of men, but it turned out that all the power was actually in the hands of women, who, the wives of the men who voted always got, the, got an ear bashing from the women the night before the vote, and it was the women who actually decided what, how the vote went. Okay, so... Women protagonist, I think, in, in your recent works, um, Juliet, Lucy, and I've forgotten your one. Well, but I want three events, yeah. Yeah, so well, the woman in the wasp suit on the on the ice cream, yeah. And I just wondered if this is the Buffy effect. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> John, you first on that one. <laughs> um, certainly not consciously. I actually. I'm running four or five characters. I just read the beginning, but I mean, Julieta is an incredibly strong character because apart from anything else, I'm ripping off Othello in this book mm -hmm. and bits of Hamlet okay. and bits of Romeo and Juliet. And across the three books, I rip all three of the plays. So I'm tied to the characters within the plays anyway. Mm. Couldn't have been Buffy with me because I'm sure it was, I had some some of the early, certainly in my third novel, there was very much, it's all, it's a first person female protagonist, a really terrifying character called Ellen May, who is a, um, that's an extremely warped lunatic, but definitely a powerful character. So she's definitely not Buffy, I mean, she could kick Buffy's ass in. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, again, I mean, I've got various, like John, got various characters running through the story, so some of them are, are women, some of them are not. Maybe, I don't know if the women have got, because the men seem to be either a confused clone, a bit of a Weasley, um, devious guy, and a gung-ho pilot who gets brain damaged very badly. Um, so maybe the men don't come off quite as well, I don't know what that says. <laughs> you know, um, science fiction is, is equal opportunity. <laughs> I'd like to bring in one or two of the guys on the platform. Patrick, do you want to, you have a question? For yeah, I mean, something that, that, that I've been thinking about, actually, and it was, is when you, when you mentioned, John, you said sort of unconsciously, right? And I wonder about, about the, specifically the question about the, the politics of your characters. Because obviously we all have sort of politics, and, and, and seeing through all of your writing, there's clearly, there, there, there are sets of, of, of political commitments that animate not just what particular characters do, but how the story itself unfolds. And I wonder, in your own compositional process, how deliberate is that? How much do you sit down and say, all right, I want to make a particular set of points about capitalism, or I want to make a particular set of points about the balance of power, or whatever? Or do you find yourself in the process of writing discovering 
the politics of your characters and the situations that you've set up. And then maybe in retrospect noting, oh right, that's a version of a particular thing that I have in my own life. Or is that something that you do more or less on purpose? I don't think it's conscious at all. I think it actually comes from outside, from the world around us. And mm -hmm. we simply look at the world around us exactly. and we take what we see and we take what there is and we put it into the books. Certainly in my case, without knowing it's in the books until I get to probably the second draft. So I don't think I'm going to include this, I'm going to include that. I mean, going through writing the Venice books, it's patently obvious that Venice is a really interesting oligarchy. Yeah. That it's a small, <coughs> tight, dangerous power block of people, of self-elected people. It has an for me, defining the city was finding a little story about the Venetians agreeing to take crusaders south, then writing ahead to tell the people the crusaders were going to attack, that they were coming, so that it didn't destroy the trade deals. So they banked the crusader money, and then they checked that they weren't actually going to lose the trade deals that came with it. And I suddenly thought, you know, the Venetian oligarchy and where we are at the moment has a certain resonance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, the politics of the characters sort of arrives as the characters arrive and take shape. Like when I was, when I was um, working on my plan for the novel The Night Sessions, which is basically a novel about uh, religious terrorism in a highly secularized future world, and I got the basic idea of the book actually came from seeing a, a YouTube video where the band are standing wearing black coats and hats on an air, an air, air airport. Why do I keep getting that word wrong? It's a, a landing strip. Yeah, they're, they're seeing an airliner coming in. And I thought, A, that they looked, it looked like a, a really dangerous situation to be in, security-wise, and to allow people to be in. And secondly, that they looked like free Presbyterian ministers. <laughs> wow! <laughs> the structure of the Presbyterian church is perfectly adapted as for an underground terrorist organization. Uh, <laughs> I would have written a book about that. <laughs> another, another time, another time the, the, the main character in the, the, execu the execution channel, <laughs> he didn't come together until... Um, I, I, the general idea of, of the book and everything, and it just came to me, he spies for France! Mm -hmm. And suddenly, <laughs> everything about it made sense. Um, well, actually, no, that's kind of adapted. A, 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 the storylines are kind of intertwined and stranded. I want to show off as much of this society as possible and also get different aspects. So the, the characters do show different sort of uh, political sensibilities, mostly naive, contemptuous, and so on. I, mean, I suppose it may seem like sounds out like she's the naive, naive-ish point of view character to whom everything is new. She's fairly contemptuous. She's aware of politics and how it works, but she doesn't really want anything to do with it. She thinks that's not the right way of doing things, which is what's wrong. Um, there's a character, Sri Hong Owen, who, who wants to use politics as much as possible to get her own way to uh, her idea of power. Is that she's a scientist, she wants power to do her own thing. Unfortunately, she's, she's really useless understanding people, so she gets in all kinds of problems trying to manipulate people because she simply doesn't understand them. 
Um, there's a guy called Lokon Ifrahim who's very good at manipulating people. His problem is that um, he can only get up to it because of the way the society he, he, he works in is stratified. He can only get up to a certain level. So he can only get up to, up to like senior civil servant level and can't make the jump into real politics, which, is wants to, which he wants to do. So again, he gets into trouble because he tries to work above his pay grade. Um, Cash Baker is complete, doesn't care as long as he gets his boy toys. So he'll do anything and that gets him in trouble. So you see, see what I'm, you know, it's, it's a different aspect of thing. And then there's a, a completely naive character who's naive of almost every human emotion because he's been trained basically to be a spy and to be somebody else and to infiltrate. And so he's got no character whatsoever and he has to develop his own point of view during the book. Um, so there was, yeah, there was some um, strategy to that, to be honest, um, some calculation in there. But then, you know, you're, you're asking, you're, writers always get a bit squirmy when you start asking them about characters and where they get their characters from, because actually they don't really know. Um, that sounds mysterious and, and weird and ooh, but it's actually true. If you start thinking about it really deeply, um, the whole process kind of breaks down into, as I say, serendipity and the bias and randomness and your own personal history and people you know, and so on and so forth. Me? Oh. Well, I guess uh, this may be a bad question to ask after uh, we've just been told that characters are often mysterious. But when I was listening to each of you uh, talk and then answer questions, um, I heard uh, both implicitly and in explicitly, but mostly implicitly, uh, a fair amount about how you go about constructing plausible worlds, right? The plausibility of your what? what how you render the worlds that you build um, sensical and plausible, both in terms of their external logic and both in terms of their internal logic and in terms of the understanding that your audience will say, yes, I can imagine that this world is true, which is a, a, obviously a particular problem in speculative fiction. So I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate a little bit more explicitly on uh, either the process by which you go about building your worlds or what stand and or what standards you use to say, aha, I believe that real people could live in this as a real world. Uh, I'm not sure real people could live, at least for very long, in quite a lot of my worlds. Um, I think I just look for coherence. I mean, I look for logic and a coherence, because you know instantly when something moves outside the world, when something, when you're about to force an issue or make something happen that doesn't happen. I mean, one of the problems I think is that writers don't on the whole think about how they write or why they write, they simply write. Um, I see what I put down on the page and I hear what the characters say. So as far as I'm concerned, it's simply what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing. And then at the end of the first draft, I more or less know what I've got. Um, the politics is, in, is inherent in the action, I think. I don't think I need this character, I need that character. But there are always characters who give both sides of every story. There are always characters who are both male, female, maybe somewhere in the middle. There are always characters that cover all the age ranges and all the societies within that. The other thing I do which cheats entirely is I have a character who is a stranger go into a society. So the character unpicks the society 
for me when I'm writing it and for the reader when the reader's reading it and for himself or herself when she's looking around. So you don't, the character is the guidebook to the world. So if the character gets it wrong, it doesn't matter because five chapters later the character can get it right. Uh, one, one picture that somebody took of me, which you can probably find if you do a Google image search of my name, is of me standing in front of a whiteboard pointing dramatically at a diagonal line with a, a wavy line superimposed on it. And that is in fact the secret of science fiction. Haha. Uh -huh. It is that you don't just project a straight line into, into the future. You assume that there will be ups and downs, that shares can go down as well as up. And that by the time you arrive at your, your point of your imagined future, you have you include in it the sediment that's been left behind by these waves, whether they're um, business cycles. The, in fact, the science fiction, the American science fiction, John Barnes, found a technique of doing this using a spreadsheet. Yeah. What he did was he, he, he worked out the chondrature of long waves, these supposed 50-year cycles that underlie periods of expansion and general depression and so on, superimposed um, um, you know, the short-term economic cycle on top of them, um, then superimposed wars and various other graphs onto them so he could work out that World War VI would kill five billion people right. and kept, kept it going like that and then threw in some wild cards to get a 23rd century future looking um, <laughs> solid and, and plausible. And I didn't do anything quite as dramatic as that, but I, that, that's, that's one of the, the things that I sort of have in the back of my mind when I'm setting up a, a future society, at least mm -hmm. on Earth, that you, you sort of look at the geological strata that, have, that will already be in it. Um, well, I guess, I mean, I'm kind of sensitive to one of the problems I think science fiction has is over-determination or the Spock syndrome in that everything has a logical explanation or it doesn't exist and every character has a logical motivation for wanting to do something and everything in the, the uh, imagined world has a logical reason for being there and a logical place, no matter whether it's derived from a, a cyclical thing involving all these things, including sunspots perhaps as well, um, or, what, or whatever. Um, because um, I don't see our present particularly like that at all. It's a series of uh, largely frozen accidents um, that uh, then have consequences that have developed. You know. Um, there's no logic, for instance, back in the days when we used to use video recorders that we used uh, VHS because we had a better system called Betamax, but uh, the uh, illogic of commercial reality beat that out and it became a frozen accident and everybody used, you know, uh, the wrong system. Um, you couldn't explain that in science fiction terms, but it would be useful to use it in, a, in, in, in constructing that kind of thing in the science fiction world. Um, I suppose if, if we're talking about sort of building something. I'm just, I'm just interested really in complexity and in, in, in richness and, and, and rightness and I, I just like to expose myself to whatever's out there and I find the internet fantastically useful for that because you can go more or less anywhere on the internet except possibly Krasnia. <laughs> what is Krasnia's uh, domain? It's sold it as something presumably. You know, <laughs> and um, 
you know, and now you've got things like Twitter where people actually send stuff they think might be useful, you know, that I might find useful or interesting, which is great as well. And all this kind of feeds in, and I suppose there's some kind of filtering process, and eventually some of the stuff comes back out that I think is useful comes back out again, and hopefully I've gotten the rest. And uh, it's all modified, as I said, the serendipity is whether I, whether I find this stuff. I don't go looking for it, especially. But you, there's, there seems to be a series of happy accidents when you're writing a novel where you stumble across the apt image or the very fact that you needed to find out, you know. Um, you just have to take down a book, which does have uh, two pages on Krasnir in it that uh, uh, somebody should have really torn out, you know, that kind of thing, uh, or has a pamphlet in it or something, uh, or a map. Um, so, so, you know, I'm exposed to all kinds of influences, and I think all those influences should feed back because it just makes the world you're creating a, a bit more plausible if it seems slightly illogical or somewhat illogical or not too, too inconsistent, as it were. Again, we're back to consistency, I'm afraid. I do slightly wonder whether we get that same sense of Yes, that was exactly what I was looking for from flicking through New Scientist. If it was another story, mm. and whether actually that other yeah. story, the other news item, would have been exactly what you were looking for, and it would just have gone in a different direction. Mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, it, you suddenly find things you didn't know you needed, and about mm. half a day later you're putting it straight into a book. I have a decision. Yeah. Um, a meta comment first. Uh, in international relations, when we talk about different kinds of, uh, of uh, events, people who study major powers, the US, well, Britain, I suppose, uh, uh, Russia, the Soviet Union, take for granted knowledge of these places so that they will talk as if their audience knew about this. Whereas in social anthropology, which is also one of my fields, one has developed a way of talking about questions and problems where one can sort of knock the capital letters off all these things and talk about what is behind them. And when I listen to you discussing science fiction between yourselves, uh, you do exactly the same thing. And you background all the sort of, should I say, the empirics of the books, and you sort of cut to the chase. And so I think international relations could learn a bit from that in the way one is discussing things between oneself. But I have a question that, uh, that goes along the same lines as the lady who started the show today. Um, on the implied readers and how you situate yourself in a globalized world. For example, uh, Ken McLeod mentioned that, uh, that uh, the future in the uh, engine of light uh, is now rather unlikely. Uh, I was trained as a Sovietologist, so I, I have a hoot when I read your books because uh, you know, I get the, a lot of the undercurrents and, uh, and you could go on discussing the Baku commissars for, to, for donkey's years and I, I would still be with you. Um, the Krasnir problem doesn't apply to me because I was there. <laughs> but I'm wondering, uh, of course not during the writing, but as you sort of make the finishing touches to the product, how you situate yourself in, sort of in, in in relationship to the implied readers, because this would obviously read very, very differently if you pick it up uh, in Ljubljana or in uh, in Moscow or whatever. And I, if if I may, I would like to, to just specify the same question to the to the other two as well, because uh, for example, uh, Grimwood's different uh, Venice. Um, I was on tour of military facilities in Kazakhstan in the early 90s and. Uh, 
they had, as, a, as a matter of course, they had big pictures, sort of a genealogy of mil military leaders up there, one of which, as a matter of course, was Genghis Khan. And if you read your stuff from that point of view, with the Mongols being so important, you would obviously read it in a very different way. And the same thing would go for, for, for Macaulay's stuff. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I happen to be the son of a geologist, and I happen to live in a place where one of the... Uh, one of the pleasures is to go skiing in minus 24 centigrades. <laughs> now, heck, I have a friend who has a cabin where they shot the ice world scenes for the Star Wars film, right? Uh, and to me, hearing about these worlds that you're talking about and how cold it is, and you're sort of standing there, wow, I almost freeze to death just by the thought of it. So, you know, how would, how would this sort of sense, the poetics of space, as it were, how, how do you think about that when you, when you put the finishing touches to a novel? Tremendous question. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, by, by trying to project yourself there, I suppose which is part of the raison d'etre of doing the thing in the first place by getting excited by those landscapes and trying to imagine them into them, and trying to imagine not as land, you know, as dead things, which um, you know they're, they're not. As because um, traditionally we always thought these moons were not dynamic, they were very boring, cratered things where anything interesting, which is mostly explosive and um, had happened, uh, mostly involved uh, big rocks, hitting small, small rocks hitting big rocks, um, and happened several billion years ago and nothing of interest had happened ever since, and it turns out they're not at all. You know, I didn't even get to talk about Titan, which is a fantastic place, really weird, and a lot of the moon made out of um, paraffin. Uh, of the earth made out of paraffin and methane, um, but, but otherwise exactly the same. Sand dunes, volcanoes, lakes, seasonal lakes, rain, so on and so forth. Um, um, but um, because of this dynamism, because of this sudden change of perspective, that's what I want to um, talk about. And yes, you do look for analogues. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, because that's your way in, really, into something, is to. Is, is, is to is in science. Science fiction is, is a lot about metaphor, I think. You know, some, something is always standing for something else in science fiction. The future is always standing for the present, frankly. You know, or some aspect of the present, some weird, horrible, distorted, you know, um, mutilated caricature of the present. Um, uh, so so it, is a, it, it is a very metaphorical, it's very, very protean um, um, literature. So, so you just try and find the thing that stands for something. Um, yeah, I mean, I can think back to the winter of 1963 in Great Britain when I was like that high and the snow was twice as high, you know. And I rode down the canal on my on my bike. And the secret of riding on ice, I found out, was to have solid rubber tires. All the kids who had expensive bikes with pneumatic tires fell over. I had solid rubber tires, and I didn't. So there you go. You know that kind of stupid little thing like that. You know, you, you, you can then extrapolate from that. Exactly. But also, you know, making use of the landscape and, and finding out about Japanese ice vessels and thinking, okay, well, let's make them really big and have mountains carved out, because we've got ice mountains, so we'll just colour the ice and use lasers and very small atomoms and, you know, things like that. And carve them into You know, that kind of thing. Immediately that becomes a bit more alive than talking about craters and plodding across a, a landscape and grimly digging out your, your ration of frozen oxygen for the day and that kind of thing, although that obviously goes on too. So, yeah. um, in the case of my, my first novel, The Star Fraction, I think I, some, I suspect the implied reader was me, <laughs> but if not me, then someone who had a spent far too much time hanging around 
obscure left-wing bookshops in London <laughs> and knew a lot of London, other undercurrents of London's ext extremely marginal politics in London. <clears throat> um, the, and I moved on, I, I tried to move on beyond that in, as, as I went on, but I could get, find myself caught out like when I'd written my, th I'd written several books, and then my third book, the Cassini Division, was translated into Polish, and it's the only one of my books that was translated into Polish. Mm -hmm. And when I was invited to Poland to um, a convention called, imaginatively enough, Polcon. <laughs> <laughs> I got interviewed very intensely, shall we say. Because in, in the, the Cassini division is essentially a sort of, it, it, in some ways, it's, it's not um, primarily about that, but part of the background is that there is this communistic utopia called the Solar Union, and uh, the whole solar system, including Callisto actually, and the, one of the ice moons, is um, part of a, a, a gigantic co cooperative commonwealth, and they the Cassini division of the title is, is, the, is their kind of elite military wing. And naturally, the, this book reads very differently in Polish to how it does in English. So you have to watch that. Uh, the, only t the only times I feel conscious about that is, in fact, on that very question about communism and post-communism. With other things, I tend to be pretty blasé. But when I was writing the Restoration game, I occasionally would stop and try to imagine how would this read to a Russian, so I mm. tried to put it to things, oh. phrase things carefully, shall we say. But other than that, yeah. I think the really interesting thing is the responses you get from editors in other countries, and also the questions asked by the copy editors. Mm -hmm. And that actually puts into perspective what other people think the book is about, and also what they're taking away from the book. So, if you have something translated into Russian or Polish, you will get a very different set of questions to having it translated into French. And I think you instantly know, not simply who was Napoleon and why was he talking about the Nile, which was a question that came up in the Polish translation of Bashasad, but what are the assumptions about the society if, you know, the Turkish translation of Bashasad made completely different assumptions about the Ottoman Empire and the value and its worth and what it stood for. Um, so yeah, I mean, every, the thing is every single book is different if you're reading it from a different mindset. But just a quick codicil to that um, is, is that the strangest perspective I get is Americans reading my stuff because uh, obviously I'm a left-wing commie simp. The feet liberal English guy who's got his ass cut by Hitler. Um, twice. <laughs> um, this is not an extreme view, by the way. Because um, American science fiction has gone in the last few years in, in much different direction than British science fiction. I don't know if British science fiction has gone in a direction, actually, or whether it's more or less stayed, like the old Labour Party stalwarts, stayed where they are. Next to Lenin. Um, 
But um, certainly American science fiction has got way more um, sort of angry, uh, uh, um, I don't want to say tea party-ish, but it's certainly got cranky. And <laughs> um, it's got all kinds of weird solutions and how you can save the world, which is mostly still by imposing American exceptionalism on the rest of the world. An odd way of looking at things, considering how stuff has turned out in the last couple of decades. Um, so, so you know, uh, it's not just looking at, uh, at non-English speaking; it's actually English speaking because the American science fiction market is the biggest market. So it's kind of a weird yeah. thing. I've actually done. I've gone over to New York and done a week's American translation on some of the books, <laughs> simply to change the perspective or to tighten the perspective or to make it comprehensible. Because I think one of the arrogances in is that you assume that everyone has your knowledge, or everyone has your position, and on the whole they don't. And things that I take for granted, particularly with history, I find people don't, so sometimes I get invited to explain it, and sometimes I just get invited to remove it. <laughs> and we get this in the academic side. Yeah. <laughs> my, fir my first book was supposed to be called Stopping Asia at the Elba, and, my and the publisher said most Americans would have no idea what that means and who that is. And I said, well, but if you publish it in Europe, then everybody will figure out what it means, because it's a really fairly famous quote, especially in a German context. And they said, no, most Americans won't get it because, of course, history starts 10 years ago. Um, and so they didn't uh, want to do So it, it changes. It gets our, our work. It's changed in exactly the same way. It's like I have to translate to the American. Very true. I think uh, the, uh, we, we've now reached the, the end of this half of the proceedings. And uh, before uh, we take a 10-minute break, and I hope many of you will join us in the next session upstairs in uh, NAB 204, uh, I, uh, we can't leave this one without thanking the speakers. I think this has been a tremendous session. And we really enjoyed it. I can, I can add a couple of points. Uh, uh, the experience of not knowing what you think, not knowing how a book is going to come out until you start writing it, and very much I always, uh, if I want to find out what I think about something, I have to write something to find out what I think about it. I, I never know before I start. Uh, the other thing that occurs to me is the society is based on the idea of kudos and uh, uh, doing something that's worthwhile. Uh, Paul very generously suggested that academic life was a bit like that. And at the, uh, at the beginning, yeah, yeah, at the beginning of this academic year, uh, the director of the school had a, a big party for the faculty and the governors, and he said, uh, uh, and he said, well, it, it, it's, first thing I'd like to tell you is that I've been talking to the government recently, uh, and as far as they're concerned, nothing you do is of any value whatsoever. <laughs> But as we proved today, this is not true. Uh, we do very valuable things. I'd like to thank the audience and thank the speakers. It's been yes. a tremendous session. Please do come upstairs. Good stuff.